So what does it mean to be a Christian? And what does it mean to be a church? Well, the book of Acts answers both these questions, especially in our passage this morning, so that we might see it together. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer in anticipation of him speaking to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us uh, by your word so that you speak readily to our uh, ears and by your spirit speak that directly into our very souls that you might do a transforming work. Pray that that would be the case now in the weariness of our physical flesh that you would quicken our spirit that we might be attentive to your word not just in the flesh, but most especially in the spirit, that we might be transformed in the way that is only available by you. Send your spirit to bear witness then to this reading and preaching. And as we pray for that, we do pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Jesus had told his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. That was not a request and it was not a motivational speech from Jesus. He was stating a divinely ordained reality. You will be my witnesses. This will be the case because the Lord has determined to make it so. And sure enough, the good news of Jesus Christ has been spreading in Jerusalem and then has also gone into Judea, southern Israel, and Samaria, northern Israel. And the chapters ahead, we'll read of it going to the ends of the earth. But at the end of chapter 11, we read of the church together and north and south together in Christ. Hear God's word beginning at verse 19 of Acts chapter 11. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift 
to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. At the beginning of Acts chapter 8, Luke wrote, On that day of Stephen's stoning, a great persecution broke out and all were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And our passage here picks up on this at verse 19, that those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch telling the message. So why does this passage not immediately follow those verses at the beginning of Acts 8? It's because in the preceding chapters, God has shown that it is possible for the Gentiles to hear the gospel, believe in Christ, and be received into the church without first becoming Jews. Verse 19 tells us that some were telling the gospel message only to the Jews, But verse 20 goes on to emphasize, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now, of course, to our modern ears, this sounds right, right? The kind of evangelism and mission work that we espouse today, sharing the gospel with everyone. But we must remember the huge divide that existed between Jew and Gentile. The previous chapters, especially with the threefold repetition of Peter's vision, show God breaking down that divide, that barrier, that hostility between Jew and Gentile so that the disciples would go into all nations. This is why the racial discrimination that was experienced and has been experienced in this country and in the Western world is anathema. The notion that an ethnic group would be rejected or ignored or oppressed in any way by Christians is beyond appalling. And so it is by the hand of a great sovereign God that Antioch, of all places, would become a place where the gospel would flourish. Consider first that the reason any sharing of God's word was happening outside of Jerusalem was because of the murder of Stephen and the persecution that followed. If not for that event, the apostles and that first generation of Christians may have been content to simply stay in Jerusalem and preach there only. But they were forced to scatter. Do you ever have bad things happen in your life? No, our lives are perfect, right? Of course, we have bad things that happen all the time. Well, the word is providence and describes how our great God ordains everything that comes to pass and can take even that which is intended for evil, the worst of the worst, and redeem it for good. And so no matter what evil is taking place in your life individually or in our life as a church corporately, God is ordaining it all for his good purposes. Consider then also the city of Antioch. History buffs who love to read about Alexander the Great and know that after his death, the kingdom he had established was divided into four parts, one of which was Antioch, ruled by Seleucus. And by the time of the Roman rule as we have it here, it was the third major city in the Roman Empire behind just Rome and Alexandria. It was a key political center. You had Jerusalem that was a Jewish city and there was plenty of uh, animosity that the Jews had towards all Gentiles and certainly had towards Roman rule. 
you had Rome itself, which was the capital city, and all the power players were there. You had Athens, the intellectual center of the world, but Antioch was this cosmopolitan city with a mix of people from all different walks of life. The historian Josephus tells us that as many as 25,000 Jews lived in Antioch because it was not that far north of the Jewish states. But it was in Syria, and so Arabs populated vastly. There were also lots of Greeks, many who descended from Seleucus and Ptolemy. And of course, there were many Romans who were the occupying power. And so it was a political center, but also a commercial center. The wealth of the East traveled through Antioch on the way to Rome. And it was just off of the Mediterranean coast, and so it did trade with all the major cities around the Mediterranean Sea. And yet Arabs also came in from the desert for trade. And Antioch prided itself on being sophisticated and tolerant because of all the different people groups who lived there and traded there. Think New York City, right? But also think Vegas, because along with being a political center and a commercial center, it was also the center of the morally corrupt. Just outside of the city was a grove of trees known as the Grove of Apollo, notorious as a place for licentious sexual indulgence, basically an outdoor brothel. And a scattering of Christians, because of the murder of Stephen, who will preach the word of God to this widely diverse group of people in a town that was as morally corrupt as they come. And verse 21 tells us, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. What a mighty God we serve, who can take the most impossible and even evil set of circumstances and do a miraculous, redeeming, transforming work in a city like Antioch. Is there any doubt of what it is that God can do in Butler City, in Butler County? And that takes us to verse 22, which is amusing and amazing at the same time. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Yeah, news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. Somehow news always reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. When anything ever happened, there's always somebody who wants to run to those who are supposed to be important and say, hey, did you hear what's going on? In this case, it was, hey, did you hear that they're preaching to the Greeks in Antioch? They're not just preaching to Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. They're preaching to the full-out pagan Greeks. What do you guys think about that? Well, the response is to send Barnabas to investigate. We've heard the name Barnabas already at the end of chapter four. There it says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And we're gonna hear more about Barnabas in the chapters to come. He's the main traveling companion for Saul Paul in his first missionary journey. Barnabas is not an apostle. Barnabas is not one of the original deacons. He's simply Barnabas, but there's nothing simple about Barnabas. He is outstanding in his discernment. And verse 23 tells us, when he arrived, 
and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Can remember Barnabas was not only Jewish in ethnicity, but he was of the Levitical priests, a Levite descending from the Levitical priests. It's not a foregone conclusion that he would go and be glad about what's happening. Certainly many at the church in Jerusalem were counting on him to have pro-Jewish tendencies. And he could have politely determined that the Gentiles had a right to hear the gospel, and so we won't stand in the way. But the Bible says way more than that. Barnabas was glad. He was delighted. These were not his people. This was not his city. But God was working there. And so Barnabas was well pleased. We do well to learn from Barnabas in this respect. To be happy when God works somewhere. Not just to give an understated, yay, but to be genuinely glad and encourage it. And also not standing on the sidelines and from far off saying, that's fine, whatever you people want to do, that's great. But to enter in and to encourage and strengthen the work that is going on. It's one of the things that we seek to do as committees in our church, not to ask, what do I want to do? But to discern What is God calling us to do? And how can I get on board to encourage and strengthen participation in what God is doing, even and especially when it isn't what I think we should be doing? So why was Barnabas able to respond in this admirable way? Verse 24, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And I know we reform people hear that first phrase, he was a good man, and we all think, uh-uh, there's no one who's good, right? We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. We're totally depraved. But the rest of the phrase defines what is meant. He was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And so he was a good man. And he doesn't come to Antioch all high and mighty. Excuse me, people, I'm the official representative of Jerusalem. I'll tell you how to run things around here. Let me tell you how we do things down south. Make sure you do that the way here. And if I think it's okay, then it will really be okay. To be full of the Holy Spirit and the faith given by God is what makes us good. To be full of the Holy Spirit and the faith given by God is what makes us love the church and love the world. To be full of the Holy Spirit and the faith given by God is what makes us invest in what God is doing instead of what we want to be doing. And what we see Barnabas do next is shocking proof of this. He doesn't try to do it himself. He doesn't try to be super Barnabas, teacher extraordinaire in Antioch, who everyone will respect and admire. No, Barnabas goes to Tarsus, to get Saul Paul and to bring him to Antioch to partner in this ministry. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Barnabas didn't try to do it all himself. He humbled himself to realize that he should have help and not try to do it solo. It's actually one of those passages that is one of the hallmarks of the Presbyterian church in that no one person is supposed to be in charge of anything. We do things with a plurality of leadership. 
Two or more are necessary to be a session. Two or more are necessary to be a board of deacons. Multiple people, the more the merrier as a committee. Multiple teachers as a team of teachers for a class. No one person can make a decision all on their own, but we run it through checks and balances to let other people weigh in and be a part of the process. In my Bible, next to Proverbs 15.22, I have the word committees written there. Proverbs 15.22 says, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. One of my favorite things that happens at committee meetings is when someone brings an idea and people talk about it. And then someone says, I'm not so sure about this. Or, I have a different idea. Or, let me offer a contrary thought. And a different perspective is added, and suddenly the committee gets their hands into the idea and really fleshes it out, genuinely discerning what God is calling us to do, rather than just going with one person's agenda and opinion. Barnabas and Saul Paul working together with a church comprised of people from different ethnic backgrounds, different cultural distinctives, different generational perspectives, and different personalities. And it is the grace of God and the work of God that is realized, and so it is God who is honored. And the result of all this is a new name. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. They've been called disciples. They've been called followers of the way. They've been called believers, brothers, and witnesses. But here, for the first time, they are called Christians. They are Christ ones people who belong to Christ. And who called them this? It wasn't the Jews, because Christ is a Greek word. It's what Messiah is in Hebrew, or anointed one. So it wasn't the Jews. Who called them this? It was the pagans around them. The Greek-speaking pagans recognized that these people belonged to Jesus Christ and sought to be like him. The old Bible teacher, Harry Ironside, tells about a time that he was traveling around China and he was frequently introduced as Yasuyan. And for a while, he didn't know what that meant. And eventually he learned that the word Yasu is the word for Jesus and Yan is the word for man. And so he was literally being introduced as a Jesus man. Are you a Jesus man? Are you a Jesus woman? Are you one of Christ's one's who seeks to be like Jesus? Are you one who belongs to Christ and so you belong to the church of Christ? Notice that connection between Christ and his church. It was those who were part of the church in Antioch who were called Christians. It wasn't people who lived their own thing and had their own Christian life apart from the church. It was people who were part of the Antioch church Christians, those who were part of that church. And so to belong to a church doesn't guarantee that you belong to Christ. But to belong to Christ is seen in part by belonging to Christ's church. And it's in that context that we read these last set of verses about Agabus coming from Jerusalem with a prediction that a famine was coming. And the historian Luke parenthetically tells us it is what happened. There really was a famine, and it happened during the role of Claudius. 
The role of a prophet is that sort of foretelling or forthtelling. And it's not so much to inform about the future, but to motivate you to form the future. Let me say that again. The prophetic message is not so much to inform about the future, but to motivate you to form the future. If you were told about something that was going to happen this week, wouldn't that motivate you to do something, knowing that that was coming? Well, Agabus predicted a famine was coming, and in faithful response of anticipation, each person provided according to their ability, and together it was given as one gift from the church in Antioch. Not for the people of Antioch, but it's going to be sent down into Judea, the other part of the country. People that aren't our people, but they are now because of Christ. And so today, as we bring tithes, and it comes together as one offering of the church, there wasn't some people who gave separately so that they could be noticed. It wasn't about self-glory, but about God's glory, the Christians together as one church. The Christians together as one church who could then go out into the world as the Christian church together. And so if you knew that there would be a famine or a hurricane or a tornado or a drug epidemic before it happens, would you respond? Well, we know it will happen. We know it is happening. And so we are motivated to respond. And we say, it's not someone else's job. It is Christians as the church together and in the world. Well, the government should respond. And then, of course, we'll complain about government overreach. It's not the government's job. It is Christians as the church together to go out into the world with the gospel. We are Christians. We are Christ ones. We belong to Christ. We are Jesus men and women. And so may God's grace be evident in our lives as we encourage and strengthen the participation in all that God is doing. And may that truth set us free. Amen.